There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Real spoilers powered by ReviewSTL.com. Warning, the following film discussion will ruin the ending of any movie you haven't seen. Example, Bruce Willis is dead at the end of The Sixth Sense. See how I ruined it for you? Just like that. Here are a few more. Silent Breed is people! I am the father. Get it? Real spoilers. You've been warned. Broadcasting from the lush but not lavish studios located in the basement of the O'Keefe Institute for Advanced Film Snarkitude, this is Real Spoilers, episode 600. Wow! How about that? A milestone. Oh wait, no, that's a miles. That's a milestone. <laughs> that is that's a milestone. You can finally say it and be, be <laughs> correct. It is a milestone. So uh, we're going to tackle. I cannot believe we made it to six hundred. I know, right? Like that's yeah. <laughs> that is we. I you know I, I joke. I jokingly say that when you look at this podcast starting from episode one, how different our lives are. Yeah. Right. So like Kevin. Has a new baby, uh, a new wife, a new sort of a new house, I guess, kind of new new occupants in his house. Uh, Tom has a new two new a new house. Yes, uh, we lost two hosts. <laughs> <laughs> I have a new I have a new baby, and now I'm moving into a new house. Look at that! So it's just it's it's crazy to think that we've gone through all of this, and here we are still going. We're on our third studio. <laughs> no, it's more than that. Well, I guess fourth because we did the. The, the closet, the closet yeah. here for a while, yeah. <laughs> right. So I guess the thing is that life happens. You just don't usually document it weekly. That's very yeah. true. I mean, That's life. Very true. People move. People lives change. But geez, we've got a record of every week, almost every single week. We've maybe missed a couple, but for over seven years, yeah, it's wild. It's pretty cool. Yeah. So I guess we should uh, go around the virtual table and introduce ourselves. This is Joe. This is Kevin. And this is Tom. Quick, shameless plugs. Don't forget, we're available on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, iHeart, Google Podcasts. Wherever you find your podcasts, you can find us while you're there. Be sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And uh, if you want to leave us a review, that wouldn't hurt either. And check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash real spoilers. While you're there, like the page, join the group, which is called the League of Show Sharers. And if you would be so kind as to share an episode, you could join the League of Show Sharers. People who were kind enough to share an episode this week, uh, Aaron Marlowe, Heather Sachs, Julianne Jordan, Chris Williams, Brent Smith, Chris Magicman, Tammy Sherman Powers, and Ralph Tribble. Uh, it's a short list this week, but we only had one episode, so that, uh, I think that probably played a role in that. But thank you guys for sharing bit. it. And uh, anything else? Oh, we have a uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash real spoilers, where for five bucks a month you get bonus content and you help us buy things like the new computer. <laughs> if you notice our audio sounds better this week, hopefully it does. That is why is because we were able to use 
those funds to get new equipment. So Kevin came over yes. to my house in the middle of a pandemic. He risked oh, bold move his life with a new baby. Risk he did well. He left the baby in the car. <laughs> <laughs> He's not a madman. Hey. He's very yeah. But that's uh, how important this podcast is. Yeah. We ordered the equipment. I went over there and installed it. We all had our masks on and uh, we made it happen. But thank you to our patrons for the funds, because yes. seriously, it's a huge help. And, and that's why we we're able to get the equipment so quickly. And yes, it sounds much better this week. So thanks for bearing with us during that transition. Yeah. So uh, this week we're going to talk about Casablanca. You know how I love talking about my old timey movies. But uh, we have a special treat, someone that likes old timey movies even more than I do. Dan, Dan's back. <laughs> even more than Dan does. More than Dan? Yeah. So uh, joining us today, one of the most respected film critics and historians in the world, Leonard Malton and his daughter and co-host of the podcast Malton on Movies, Jesse Malton. Hey, how's it going? That's me. It's going fine. Thank you so much. I just My first question before we dig into movies, is there ever any strife, Jesse, that it's not called Maltens on Movies? No, I... I... <laughs> It sounds funny, but people ask us that. Do you? Yeah, okay. Just come we, up before. Yeah, we I, I think we sort of look at Malton as an entity. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> it's a brand. Yes. I get it. Yeah. And so I don't know what Malton's on movies to me uh, trips you up too much. And <laughs> so I'm fine with it being Malton. Plus, the reality is I am his sidekick. <laughs> You're there for one Malton and you end up with two. So I feel like, you know. It's a BOGO. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Bonus Maltons everywhere you look. Absolutely. It's a, it's a BOMO. 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 <laughs> trademark so, real spoilers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't think we can trademark their name, Kevin. So, oh. <laughs> uh, so this is episode 600 of Real Spoilers, and uh-huh. uh, we're talking about Casablanca. And we know, uh, Leonard, that it's your favorite movie of all time. Yep. And so let's just start chronologically. I'm just curious. Do you remember the first time you saw Casablanca? Yes, because it, it had real significance for me. It would have been in the late 60s. I might even be able to boil it down, 67, 68, somewhere in there. There was a big Bogart revival in the late 60s that coincided with the kind of the counterculture movement in the, in the U.S. You know, it was the time of Bonnie and Clyde. It was the time of, of social change some would say social revolution, somehow or other, the, the agents of that change, the college students and the young people, discovered Bogart and adopted him as their anti-hero, which is he definitely is playing Rick uh, Blaine in Casablanca. And so what started as a Bogart uh, movement at, uh, in Cambridge, Mass., at a famous movie theater there, uh, started to spread around the country. And my parents took me into Manhattan. We lived in New Jersey in the suburbs. It took me into Manhattan to the 8th Street Playhouse, where we had a double feature of High Sierra and Casablanca. And so the first time I saw the movie was in a theater nice. with an audience on a big screen. And it, 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 it turned me around. It, it changed my life. But clearly he has no memory of the whole thing. <laughs> no, so, I was going to say, I, yeah. I, I, that's, that's very impressive. What, so as you're sitting there in that theater and the credits roll at the end, what was going through your mind? What, was, what were you feeling after the initial viewing? God, what a great movie. <laughs> you know, it just, it, you know, I loved everything about it. And uh, I didn't know everything about it then. 
but it made me want to learn more. It certainly whet my appetite to see more Bogart films. And uh, in the years, in the many years since, uh, I, I've returned to it and continue to learn things. I wrote, a, uh, I wrote an article for my uh, newsletter that I published back in the uh, aughts <laughs> of the 21st century. And uh, it's now in a, a co- compilation book uh, I have out called Hollywood. Hooked on Hollywood. Hooked on Hollywood. Brain, brain is not up to up to speed today. Well, you've written uh, so many books too. Got to keep yeah. them all straight. <laughs> well, it's it's called all the music of Casablanca. Now everybody knows that as time goes by, is is, is you know is used prominently and beautifully and effectively in that film. But the fun fact of it is that one time I, TCM must have been showing it, and I was channel surfing. And I always linger on Casablanca a little while. And I heard in the background, Sam character in the background playing Cole Porter's Love for Sale. And I said, oh, I didn't remember that song was used in this movie. And then I stayed and I listened some more. And I heard other popular songs. It had to be you. uh, A lot of what we call standards of the 20th century. And I said, huh. And I went down to the USC Warner Brothers archives, where USC got this incredible gift from Warner Brothers decades ago, their entire paper archives. And that's on the surface of it sounds great, but (laughs) even beyond what, what you can imagine, Warner Brothers had it as a studio policy to put everything in writing. It says right on the bottom of every piece of stationery, or a memorandum, put it in writing, verbal communication causes confusion. So it was a studio policy. So now we have this incredible paper trail where, and, and it's been collated now already for you. So everything is in sequence. The first piece of paper in the Casablanca file is the piece of paper where a literary scout in New York recommends purchasing this play by Murray Allison called Everybody Comes to Rick's. That's task one. (laughs) And it follows all through the planning, preparation, shooting, release, re-release, sale to television. All of that is there. And so that was my primary uh, source for writing about all the music that's used in Casablanca. But to go back with, as time goes by, the whole song is never played. Mm. They don't play it from start to finish. And they didn't record it. No. Initially, it was not something that they recorded. I don't think they knew it was going to become this hit. So after the fact, they went back and made a record. But it didn't exist initially. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Leonard, didn't that song come from a Broadway show that the writer of the play heard it in and it actually wasn't original to Casablanca? Oh no, it's not original to Casablanca yeah. at all. It's 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 from the time of the of the play, which is 1931, and the hit record at the time was by Rudy Valley, who was you know, hugely popular, which is a mystery to a lot of people. <laughs> but, but Rudy Valley was a hugely popular singer uh, of the late 20s and early 30s, and when Casablanca came out, just to make things more complicated, there was a musicians' recording strike. And no one could record new songs, Oof. except with uh, like a choral background, yeah. but nothing with instrumentalists. 
So Decca Records reissued Rudy Valley's 1931 uh, disc, and it became popular on that basis all over again. Later that year, when some of the record companies started signing deals with the Musicians Union, Dooley Wilson, who played Sam, did record as time goes by. Wow. And that record, for some reason, is very obscure. I've never even heard it. Wow, that's amazing. It's, there's so much history. It almost seems like you could write an entire book on Casablanca. I'm surprised you haven't done that with all those notes and everything. <laughs> well, other people have beat me to the punch. And done <laughs> sure. But no, it's, it's every facet of it uh, is, is interesting to me. No one who appears on camera with the line of dialogue is dull. Right. They're all colorful. Uh, the, the guy who plays the pickpocket mm-hmm. in the early scenes... His name was Kurt Bois, and uh, he had a uh, he was kind of a star in Germany in in Weimar Germany before the Nazis came in, uh, and uh, like a lot of other people, he fled for his life. He was Jewish. He fled, wound up in Los Angeles, uh, doing you know small roles, character roles. Uh, happy to be working, happy to be safe. So going to the movie itself, and, and aside from all the great music in it, and, and because of your love for this film, what is it about the characters? You mentioned that there's so many interesting things, and I agree. It's like, to me, it's a perfect screenplay. It's Every character has a purpose, and they're interesting. There's no dull points. But what do you love about the characters? And I guess we should talk about the main character, Rick, in particular. Well, here here's the thing. People often ask uh, how they can introduce their kids, friends, whatever, to older films, classic films. And there are some that require a lot of explanation. There are some that really need uh, uh, need you to set the scene. What I find with Casablanca is that everything in it. So let's say you don't know the history within it, as in what it's uh, trying to reflect and when it's supposed to be happening. What you know is that they all look amazing. So if you just start there, the sets are beautiful and the costumes are beautiful and the leads are so gorgeous and the way it's lit. So you can go through just like that. Mm -hmm. But the first time my dad was asked to do a tweet along uh, uh, for TCM, asked him to do it. And I sat with him. It was the first time we'd watched Casablanca together. And he was telling me all this. He goes, well, the reason they're singing this is because of this. And this was supposed to be this. And by the end of the film, uh, it was like a new movie for me. And so I feel like part of what is so incredible about the characters is that you can watch knowing nothing and be swept up in it. But then someone like my dad who knows everything about it can explain things to you and it just deepens your appreciation for all the pieces. So what you're saying is I should sit my kid down when I do that with Back to the Future. Perfect. It's going to be yeah. a whole di- yeah, perfect, yeah. excellent. Yes, yeah. ideal, ideal. Yes, I'm just glad he picked a PG film. Like, <laughs> well, you know, as, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the, Model the, parenting. The exposition in this movie is masterful. Like w- I, watching it again yesterday, it, it's it's just the way every character. You were saying how every character has a purpose, and they just convey what's going on in Casablanca just with a stray line of dialogue or a look and. And it happens so frequently that, like, not that it's not purposeful, but, like, I almost feel like there's no way that that the creators had, had crafted it to that degree. I feel like at some point just magic takes over and just everybody's bringing the A game at every level in every functioning role. Well, it, it's taught, I know, uh, fairly widely as the perfect screenplay. Yeah. 
you know, for aspiring screenwriters. And to me, uh, echoing what you just said, I think it is the perfect screenplay because it has, it has adventure, it has suspense, it has romance, of course, it has humor, and it has a point of view. Yeah. It's about something, it has topicality, but the topicality doesn't limit its audience to people who, yeah. as Jesse said, know something about that period of World War II. It draws you in because of all those other ingredients. But even learning about the, so in the, when they're singing yeah. in the club and mm-hmm. they're sort of dueling national yeah. anthems, you, you said that. Uh, uh, it's not a national anthem. I, no, no, I yeah. like, you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not a literal national anthem, but they're singing the Their songs. Their song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the reason uh, that, that in part that the faces are, that it feels so real is that many of them, we're refugees. We're refugees. Oh, okay. Look at all okay. those faces uh, uh, that are so swelled with emotion. And uh, they really were emigres. They really were refugees. Uh, uh, the casting director did a great job of picking those faces. Uh, so the people, not only the people who have uh, supporting roles or bit parts, but just, you know, just the, the, the faces in the crowd. But there too, when someone tells you that, you go, oh my God, there's a, another layer. Right. Yeah, I think there's only three American-born citizens in the in the film, correct? Uh, I never heard that statistic. Yeah, but, he hasn't but looked undoubtedly, it up, but... undoubtedly true, because <laughs> Bogart would be one, yeah. Dooley Wilson would be two, and uh, third I have to think about. The cameraman. No, I'm just yeah. <laughs> yeah. He walked. He, there was a reflection. Yeah. Steve, the, the, the guy who holds the light in the back. Not S.C. Sakal. Not Leonid Kinski. This is not a competition. Uh, <laughs> you would win it. You've got us beat. Yeah, we're not going to try. You, 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 you are leaps and bounds from, from anywhere that we so would be. So going back to that song real quick, I had read that uh, they purposefully didn't use the national anthem because it was still under copyright. And that they they were afraid that they would either one get sued or two have to pay royalties to Nazis if they had used oh. it. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just really. I don't. Know, that's what I read. <laughs> I hate when I have to pay royalties to Nazis. Yeah, no. I don't. Such I, a frustrating. That doesn't sound. Uh, that doesn't sound exactly right to me. Uh, they had to find something that would uh, work in counterpoint. You know, for at least uh, eight bars or however long right. it is yeah. that they're singing them both. And apparently it was a beer hall song. It's it's anything but a national anthem. Right. Yeah. I'm sorry, okay. I'm sorry. I was just saying. Would it be kind of like singing instead of singing our national anthem like God Bless America? It would be like singing yeah. Take Me Out to the Ball My, Game. Fair enough. <laughs> okay. What what she said. It's one way to make sure we all know the rules. Jesse, words. I had a, I had a quick question. Obviously, we know that this is your father's favorite movie. When was the first time that you saw this movie? So here's the problem uh with growing up in the house I did. Yeah. <laughs> Almost all movies are smushed into one very movie. <laughs> so what I find has happened as I've gotten older is that slowly but surely when I rewatch things, I think, oh, Humphrey Bogart wasn't talking to the Marx Brothers <laughs> while uh, Charlie Chaplin was building a circus in a house that Buster Keaton was falling through. <laughs> like this is, it's a part of how my brain has worked it out. So Probably very young, and then many times since because uh, he, whenever it's on, he'll keep it on. And then when he when he used to lecture on cruise ships, it's a movie that they often showed. Yeah. So there, 
Um, so I, I'll, many, I don't know, lots, lots, Very many cool. places, extra movie. But, but the first <laughs> time we actually sat together to watch it was probably 10-ish years ago for that TCM, mm-hmm. TCM party thing, Tweet Along. Yeah. That's the first time where we properly sat down and just watched the movie straight through. So, Leonard, I read that you're quoted as saying that Casablanca is the best Hollywood movie of all time. And this was in an article, I think, celebrating the 70th or the 75th anniversary. Uh, do you still hold that to be true? And now it's 77 years later. And why do you think that is? Because obviously we still have great movies coming out, but what makes it so timeless and a classic? that's almost untouchable well all the reasons i i just listed before and perfection is hard to beat (laughs) (laughs) of perfection uh and to me there there are no flaws in this movie there are no you know there's no downtime there's no uh, excess uh verbiage or footage uh everything matters Everything matters. And you are made to care about the people and the dilemmas that they're facing. You know, and that's not easy to do. Well, and it's a testament to it as well that obviously for many movies, once you know the ending, once you know what's going to happen, uh, it can take away a bit of the suspense. Obviously, that's how that would work. (laughs) Well, the fact that that you watch this and you still really hope they end up together. (laughs) You know, right. you still, a little part of you goes, well, maybe they both get on the plane. Maybe they, maybe they do that, you know, and, and, and you know full well it's not going to happen. But, uh, but it's just because you, you want it so much. You love them and you care about them. And that, that is a big deal. Yeah, I read that it was almost like a deal breaker for Humphrey Bogart because he's like, when, in what world would we not end up together? And they had to convince him to to let that happen and for him to have like, like a higher cause. And I think that's amazing that, especially for the time, that that was so unheard of for an ending like that. Well, in fact, there there very nearly was another ending. They, they didn't have an ending. No, and, and you, you, know, you know what he says, at the, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. You know that that was added how late in the game, yeah. which is also funny when you think that you have this great line that people recognize and it definitely didn't happen when they filmed the film. No, I read that they dubbed it and the original line was Louie. I should have known you'd mix your patriotism with a little larceny. That's a good line too. But the line they ended up with though, it's like. Yeah. But, but what happened was the war and bad timing caused, caused different problems. They wanted to film another ending, a more patriotic ending with Rick and Louie on a troop ship showing that they've signed up and are actively fighting for, for, the, for the, the right side. But Claude Rains was, had gone back home, back east, and uh, travel was severely uh, limited uh, for you know, civilians during the war. And Ingrid Bergman had started shooting uh, a, a big movie called For Whom the Bell Tolls with Gary Cooper, for which she, she cut off most of her hair into a boyish uh, uh, haircut. And so, you know, matching, you know, the with getting a wig and trying. They didn't have that person who did a Henry <laughs> mustache. Well, that's probably for the best. Let's yeah. be honest. Thank that's, God. Yeah. Anyway, so circumstances forced them to go with the ending that they had. Ah, but it's such a perfect ending, and I know that we say that now because it is the ending, and it's such an iconic movie. But geez, it just is, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I think the larceny line is a good line but i think what makes the other line so great is that it it does set up in your head this whole next movie 
that you're never going to get, but just of these two going off and having these grand adventures and and doing the right thing. Casablanca 2, electric blue. Yeah, Yeah. The, the legend of Curly's Gold. But yeah, it just kind of sets up this this idea of like they're going to go use the their kind of you know CD machinations, but for good now. Yeah, yeah. And I had read, and Leonard, do you know from your research if this is right or you know it's on the internet, so who knows? But <laughs> they had one ending originally where Rick was going to get arrested, like a total dour ending. That may be, but I don't remember that. Okay. I, I read that and they, it's they... one of the thing with Casablanca, you know, there's a handful of these movies where people have 8,000 fun facts. Sure. Right. And probably six of them are true. <laughs> um, sort of, what's that? What's the, the wizard of Oz book? Somebody wrote, or, and then there's one for, for singing in the rain, like the 900 things people have said that are not real. Yeah. Uh, well, I, think... I mean, one of the, one of the phony factoids that won't seem to die is that originally it was going to star Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan. Uh, Well, every year the studios would announce with great fanfare in the trade magazines, they would take out these big sections, like maybe 20 uh, thick coated paper stock uh, pages where they would announce the upcoming roster of films. And in many cases, they hadn't really finalized these plans. You can find one of those pages in 1937 that says, uh, coming, James Cagney in The Adventures of Robin Hood. <laughs> so that appears in print, but it wasn't true. Oh. Uh, you know, so similarly, there may be such an ad for Ronald Reagan and Ann Sheridan or someone else in Casablanca that people keep you know, tossing into the, into the fray here saying, see, see, they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, <laughs> Or that they offered the part to George Raft. They never offered the part to George Raft. But wouldn't you want to see it with George Raft? No. Oh, well. <laughs> no, you would not. All <laughs> part of it comes to this movie. I did a story about it one night on Entertainment Tonight. Uh, they had me do a series uh, on, on great movies that were now coming onto video. That's how old this story is. <laughs> and the next day, I picked up the phone, and a gravelly voice said, this is Larry Martin? I said, yes. Yeah. Well, this is Hal Wallace. I just want to tell you how much I appreciated the nice things you said about Casablanca last night. Hal Wallace ran Warner Brothers. <laughs> he was the production chief of Warner Brothers, and this movie was his baby. Ah. And, uh, and there's a book called Inside Warner Brothers. But if you guys haven't read, I can't recommend highly enough, uh, compiled by uh, my late friend Rudy Belmer, based on all those memos that I just told you about that they have at USC. And so this is not Say based the the book again. inside Warner Brothers. You'll By Rudy to, Belmer. You'll have to find a used copy if you can. The best part of this is it's not remembered history. It's history in the making because these memos and letters are happening in real time. So you can see that Hal Wallace is complaining about this or, or uh, having a battle with the director, Michael Curtiz, or arguing over the casting of somebody or other. It's so funny that, like, all those years later, he's still happy that someone said something nice about Casablanca. Like, <laughs> like there's this anti-Casablanca lobby out there working against <laughs> it. Who's ever said something bad about this movie? <laughs> well, what happened, actually, at the Academy Awards that year was when they announced the best picture. Now, Hal Wallace didn't often, didn't always take screen credit. He was a studio executive, 
So it was assumed that he had something to do with every movie the studio made. But then he chose certain productions to put his, literally his signature on. And this was one. And when they announced that it had won Best Picture, Jack Warner, the titular head of Warner Brothers Studio, raced to the stage and beat out Hal Wallace (laughs) to accept the Oscar. And Hal Wallace was so furious that he left Warner Brothers. Hmm. Oh, my gosh. Set up shop at Paramount. As I say, it's just such a shame you're not passionate about this subject. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Crying shame. Oh my gosh, there's so much history. Yeah, I, I'm. T- I mean, I know that other book exists, Leonard, but that sounds like a great book in the making. You should do that, Casablanca, the entire history. I met two the two surviving cast members on the 50th anniversary of the film, and they were Leonid Kinski, who plays Sasha, the bartender, and Dan Seymour, who plays the uh, the big burly uh, guard at the uh, the door mm. to the private room. Oh yeah, I can't remember his character's name. Uh, but uh, uh, they were both very happy to uh, talk about the film, and uh, it, it meant something to both of them, though they had long careers. That's incredible. So if you two, I mean, I know this movie's full of amazing lines and amazing moments, but if I could ask each of you, do you have a, a favorite line slash moment? Of course he does. Not 20 a, of them, but... <laughs> he has a pillow. I have a pillow, an embroidered pillow. I was misinformed. <laughs> It's, and that's mine, too, because it just always makes me laugh. There's so many lines in this movie as I rewatch it. And I remember, like, we recently did an episode on the Maltese Falcon and the writing and the delivery in these Bogart movies. Uh, my wife watched Casablanca for the first time with me over the weekend, and she calls it, she likes how sassy Rick is. <laughs> yeah. It's true. Right. Sassy man. I love it. That's how she describes it. You know, I'm thinking he's so cool and suave and confident, but she's like, he's sassy, and I love it. Yeah. yeah. A lot of people don't know this. Humphrey Bogart invented the Z-snap. Oh, so <laughs> add it to 901 fake facts about yeah. Casablanca. Right. So, um, Leonard, if could I could I ask you a non Casablanca question real quick? Sure. That the the nerd in me that grew up in the 80s would just love to hear the story about how you ended up in Gremlins too. <laughs> yes. Oh. Well, uh, it's it's pretty straightforward. I got hired in 19 spring of 82. I got hired to be the film critic on this still fairly new show called Entertainment Tonight. So I started reviewing movies on a national TV show that was growing in popularity month by month. And the first of its kind. Yeah. And yeah, there was nothing else like it. There was no E-Channel. There was no Access Hollywood. E.T. was the first of its kind. So I had to review the new movie Gremlins, executive produced by Steven Spielberg and directed by Joe Dante. Now, I I don't hang out with movie makers, you know, That's something that I've not sought because if you're going to review somebody or criticize somebody, you don't want to be, you know, trying to be pals with them. Right. But it happens that Joe and I know each other since we're teenagers. Oh. (laughs) And, uh, you know, he he used to do capsule reviews of of old movies for Castle of Frankenstein magazine. (laughs) And uh, uh, so we had friends in common and all of that. Well, I went to see Gremlins. And I didn't like it. I, I thought it was a little too mean-spirited for my taste. And the joke is that Joe filled it with in-jokes for all of his pals, all his movie buff pals. Well, I appreciated all those, all those in-jokes, but I, overall, I just, the film just didn't do it for me. 
Well, if I was on a newspaper staff as a film reviewer, I would just recuse myself and pass it on to the next film. Well, there was no one to pass it on to. I was it at Entertainment Tonight. And this was a big movie from Warner Brothers that couldn't be ignored, had to be reviewed. So I lost some sleep wondering what to do. And then I said, you know, all I have is my credibility. That's all I've got to peddle here. And if I go soft on it and don't tell the truth about what I think, it's, it's not, not a good idea. It'll set a bad precedent. So I, I gave it the review just as I sort of paraphrased it to you now. And it caused a rift between us, which I fully understand. You know, no one likes to be told, you know, your baby is ugly. <laughs> and uh, it's no fun being cri- – I've gotten criticized. I know it's, no, it's not a good thing. But a couple of years went by, and one day I pick up the phone, and it's Joe's then-producing partner, Mike Fennell. And he says, uh, we're doing a sequel to Gremlins, and we're going to have them invade a, a TV network and go into all the different studios and make a, a wreck of the shows. And one of them is going to be a movie review show, and we wanted you to be the movie reviewer. <laughs> and I said, well, I think I owe you that. <laughs> so there I was on a Warner Brothers soundstage, where they built this set with movie theater seats. And Joe has me hold the video cassette of the original Gremlins. And he says to me, just use your own words. <laughs> so he directed me to give Gremlins a bad review in Gremlins 2. And my favorite bit is when he's being strangled by the film strips, he's being pulled back. He goes, it's a 10, it's a 10. <laughs> and then his, his, his claim to fame, the thing that makes him happiest is that it got me on two uh, Tops gum cards. Oh, <laughs> That's... nice. That's awesome. <laughs> I've signed dozens of those for collectors uh, over the years. And uh, so, you know, I thought that was uh, poetic justice. That's nice. And, of course, you and Joe have long made up and are friends now. And oh, yeah. Perfect. Yes. yeah. Yes. That's great. That's great. Yeah, it's funny that you think that the product that they put out was mean-spirited, considering the original was way more intense and more horror. No, the themed. original is the one that he was. No, I mean, he means the no, no. The, the original script for Gremlins was much more oh. rated R horror movie. Oh, God. and then Spielberg gets a hold of it and turns into a PG Christmas movie. That's, yeah. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, we don't want to keep you guys too long. I know you've got your own stuff, so we really appreciate talking with you and coming on for the big six hundredth episode. It's really an honor. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you sure. so much. Congratulations. And congratulations, guys. Thank you very much. And before we go, not that you need a plug from us, but where can people find all of your stuff? We'll take any plug we can get. <laughs> We're not proud, uh, not needy. Well. Not needy, just greedy, something like <laughs> there that. There you go. My website is leonardmalton.com. I write film reviews, DVD and Blu-ray roundups of classic films. Book roundups. Uh, and uh, film book roundups, too. Uh, leonardmalton.com. Our uh, podcast is Malton on Movies, and you can find it wherever you find podcasts. The handles are at Jesse Malton. Yep. At Leonard Malton right. on Twitter. Uh-huh. And, and Facebook. No. No. Twitter Almost. and Instagram. That's right. And, and then you're on Facebook. Yep, somewhere. You did it. Somewhere. <laughs> Good job. It's a lot of stuff to remember. That's great. They grow up so fast, you know? <laughs> you turn around, and here they are. Well, thanks again, both of you. Yes, like, thank you so yeah, much. Yeah, thank this you guys so much for coming on. I appreciate sure. it. Take care, you guys. Continued success. Thank to you. you so much. Thank you, thank you very much. Bye.
Bye-bye now. Well, that was awesome. What an honor to have the legendary Leonard Balton and Jesse on. That was cool. Yeah. We made it, fellas. That was really awesome. Especially, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, when he was talking about the beginning of Entertainment Tonight, I'm like, yes, I was 11, and I was watching it every <laughs> I li- When night. he said that, I started humming the theme in my head. Da-da-da-da-da. I did, too. I <laughs> almost John, did John yeah. Mary Hart and John Tesh were the hosts that I remember. I was 11, I think, when that show premiered, and just watching it every night. You didn't have the internet or even entertainment weekly or anything like that so like when that premiered if you were a movie and tv nerd like that was that was it that was all you had that's amazing i mean yeah people forget even i start forgetting we talk about video stores and things like that that seem like they were ages ago i mean i know joe worked at one so it's probably a little different but i I mean doesn't that seem like a lifetime ago how much you've done since you worked at blockbuster no <laughs> Being able to leave my house seems like a lifetime ago. I have I haven't done a whole lot in the, well, <laughs> the I mean, but your life has drastically changed since you worked at Blockbuster. Yes, yes. No, totally, totally. It just it's it's weird to think you know, so when I was a kid, like that was your Friday or Saturday night, yeah. right? Like my folks went out and played in like a rec volleyball league on Fridays. So they would come home from work, we'd go to the video store, grab a pizza, and then They'd plop us in front of the TV and they'd go do what they were going to do. And it, but that was like a big, it was a big part of my life. Like going yeah. to the, going to the video store and running through and looking at cover boxes that had nothing to do with the movie behind them because that's what they used to do. <laughs> yeah. Marketing. Oh yeah. I was just like, I remember yeah. what there was, I don't remember what it was, but it was, I picked it up. Oh, it was like a, a Kung Fu movie that said it had Bruce Lee on the cover, but it was not Bruce Lee in the movie. Like it was Bruce Lee with one E. L I. It was yeah. one with one E, yeah. just L E, <laughs> and then you're just like, "What am I? What you bastards?" <laughs> but it was—I mean—that was just a big part of my. That was a huge part of my life that sure. doesn't exist anymore. Well, you know, uh, talking about, like since we're talking about Casablanca, when we when I was watching this yesterday, I thought to myself, "Boy, it's great that I can just watch Casablanca whenever I want, right? I can just yeah, pop it in right. and yeah. watch it whenever I want on demand. Don't it's, it's and I have it through Vudu. I have it got it on Blu-ray. Like I can no matter what, I can just." Boom, Same, it's ready. Right. But I was also thinking, like, boy, it used to be such a big deal when you saw that, oh, my God, they're showing Casablanca on Saturday. Yes. Or, oh, my God, they're showing, you know, Paper Moon or whatever movie it, you were excited to see that you hadn't seen in maybe a year or a year and a half. And uh, oddly enough, now that every movie is at my fingertips, I find myself watching the movies I love less I've I've found a similar thing. It's a Netflix problem. I yeah. mean, I think we've touched on this before, but too many choices is a bad thing. As in, I mean, it's great for convenience, but when you go through Netflix and you have tens of thousands of choices or when you have a thousand Blu-rays, it's really, really hard to go through and pick, like, what are we going to watch tonight? Sometimes, I know it's probably the same for you guys, sometimes my wife and I spend as much time as we could have watched a movie <laughs> yeah. picking a movie. Right. Yeah. Like, because yeah. you're just like, what do you want to watch? No. Okay, this. Yeah. No, I don't want to watch that. You know, like, you go back and forth. But when you see it on TV and there's a couple movies playing, or even when you go to the video store and you're like, yeah, that looks good. Let's pick it. We know we got to go. We're not just sitting at home. You're out somewhere and you want to go. Like, yeah, get this movie. It, it, the limited options helped you choose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it absolutely was like, oh, that movie I want that isn't there, so I guess I'll move to the next one. Oh, right. that one's not there? Great. Well, I'm watching Superman. That's what I'm doing now. Economists that's... refer to that as the paradox of choice. <laughs> yeah, that's there also true. Yeah. That's very true. And uh, yeah. th- and that's why you see a store like Costco, like, the, you know, you won't get, you know, 15 different types of ketchup. You get you get one. 
You're either buying this right, ketchup right. or you're not buying this ketchup. End of story. So In and out, you get 20 times what you need, but you're set. There's no like, you know, how much do I need of what kind? You're just oh, like, oh, I I'm need getting- 15, 15 gallons of ketchup. Yeah. That's what I need. That's Perfect. it. That's your choice. <laughs> but let's talk about Casablanca instead of ketchup. Yes. All right. So like uh, this this film, of course, is one of the greatest movies of all time, directed by Michael Curtiz, who you may know uh, directed White Christmas, The Adventures of Robin Hood, a ton of other films. It won three Academy Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Writing for Adapted Screenplay. It was nominated for five other Oscars as well. Uh, it was adapted, as we heard from Leonard Malton, it was adapted from a play called Everybody Comes to Rick's by Joan Allison and Murray Burnett. Warner Brothers paid a record $20,000. $20,000. And when we talk about how much it made and everything, yes, $20,000 for the right to this unproduced play. So it Oh, actually, so it hadn't even been produced yeah, yet? Yeah, they had never no. produced it. They just oh. came across the script. Yeah. I didn't realize that. Okay. That's crazy. And by comparison, for a similar film by the studio that wasn't too far ahead of this one, The Maltese Falcon, they purchased the rights, which, of course, that was a book, but they purchased the rights to that for $8,000. So this was $20,000. This is a pretty big jump. Um, but it was written, uh, the adapted screenplay, which won that Oscar, written by Julius Epstein and uh, his brother, uh, Philip Epstein. They're twins. Oh. And uh, Howard Coach and Casey Robinson. So it had uh, several different hands in there. Uh, and uh, score by Max Steiner, which we talked about as well with the Maltons. Uh, it's this beautiful it's, iconic. It's, it's Rick and Scott's brother. I'm not sure if you knew that, Kevin. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, no, was, I didn't. That was you. wrestling corner for you there, Tom. That's what that was. <laughs> oh, I was thank you for explaining for <laughs> for 98% of our audience. Yeah, right, that was that was a deep cut for me. That's what that was. Sorry. But the film had a budget of just over a million dollars, which actually went over budget. Uh, that would be adjusted for inflation about $16.5 million today. And it went on to make, it wasn't a huge hit, but it did make money. It made about $3.7 million upon initial release, which would be about $58.8 million. So, you know, they bought the rights to the unproduced play for 20000 and made $3.7 million. Sure. Not a bad investment. Yeah, that's that's not bad. That works. That's a Blumhouse uh, deal right there. Yeah, but then think about how much money they've made over the years selling the right, right. posters. I'm and sure t-shirts. it's never turned a profit. Yeah. And <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it's iconic. Um I Tom, because you would have seen this before either of us, what is what is your memory of seeing this movie? I'm trying to remember the first time I saw this movie. I think I was pretty old. I think I might have been in my twenties because I I think I kind of viewed it as something that was gonna be boring, you know? And mm-hmm. and uh and I took a, a film class in college, which I I love movies, but I I was I loved like current movies, and there were some older movies I had stumbled on that I had enjoyed, but but uh, I I wasn't necessarily like a major film nerd, and I really think that class turned me into one because they they made me watch a lot of movies that I wouldn't have watched otherwise, and I remember one of the ones that I watched that I would have never watched by myself was Citizen Kane, and absolutely fell in love with that movie um expecting it to be a complete boring eat your vegetables kind of movie and was just sucked in and uh and then from then i was like well how many other movies have i written off that i thought because they were classics quote unquote they must be boring and so i'm assuming that's about the time that i watched something like casablanca because then i started just burning through classic movies like just the really like there wasn't an AFI top hundred at the time, but a lot of what would go on to become AFI's top hundred, right? And uh, and so, I just remember just 
a lot of like, oh, that's where that line comes from. I said that about 15 times. <laughs> that's what Katie said. And I, like I mentioned earlier, she just watched for the first time. She loved it. She's like, that's so good. And she loved the dialogue and everything. But she like even the last line, you know, she's like, that's where that's from. It's amazing how much how ingrained this is in pop culture. Yeah, I saw it as a teenager. A lot of movies I found in high school. And like, that's when I met Blake and we worked together at Circuit City and he was a huge film buff. So Blake would always tell me about movies. And I can't remember if, for instance, he recommended that one but during that period of my life i saw schindler's list and casablanca and uh cool hand luke which i think is blake's favorite movie like i hadn't seen that and that movie's amazing so uh you know and and it's one of those movies you can watch over and over again and find new things because as we talked about with leonard and jesse the screenplay is so tight but it is so packed there's no lull in in, in it whatsoever there's so much in every scene and it, it's quick and it moves and uh, the what makes it great that I don't know if we necessarily touched upon it earlier, but Tom was alluding to the fact that like the exposition and everything's handled so masterfully, and I think that's because there's so much subtext yeah. on the screen. Yeah, they don't have to, they don't have to dump anything. It's the way that the characters, even with their eyes, tell you how they're feeling, and with their physical actions, and there's so much going on at once, and so much you can read into that you can't look at it all at the same time. So it's one that every time I watch, I find new things, and I constantly amazed by how good it is, how well it holds up, and that snappy dialogue, just like with the Maltese Falcon, you know, Bogart had a way where even. You know, the lines were great, and I know the writing in this is amazing, but you got to think that Bogart has a way of just taking those lines and making those Bogart lines. Well, yeah, like if you think about it, even the, you know, you played it for her, you can play it for me. That's on. Oh, man. There are there are lines in this movie that on paper are great lines. That is not one of them. Right. Like, if you just read that line, you played it for her. You can play it for me. Like, it's like it's not really witty or super clever. It's but there's something about the way he says it that yes. makes it a great line. That is a great he, line because of the line reading end of story. He's got a he's got a level, I mean, like we said earlier, the the sass factor right. mm-hmm. that takes a line like that and turns it into something more. And I you know, it, we've talked we talk you know, we talked about him uh during the Maltese Falcon episode, but that he just has a certain quality to him that makes those lines work you know a a, a throwaway line turns into something you're just like oh that's that was a that was a good line like that was you know there's a certain level of gravitas when he delivers a line like that so the movie takes place in december of 1941 so it's right before pearl harbor uh the u.s is not involved in in world war ii at this point and what's interesting is that you know we watch this film kind of out of context not to say that we don't understand world war ii at all but if you're watching this movie they were making it during world war ii about world war ii right right and that's what's so significant about it i think that's part of why this movie resonates so much so many years later is because the backdrop of this story is very important and Mm -hmm. at the time it was just current events and you can tell within the film and it was it was interesting watching it in our current political climate because yeah um you could the casablanca exists in kind of this you know this this dmz or no man's land where it's like it's kind of french it's kind of german it's kind of like they don't really know who's in charge and nobody wants to offend anybody, but everybody wants to win the fight. And, you know, they even talk about like, oh, you know, we don't talk about politics. 
And, yeah. and but there reaches a point in the story where it's like it's not about politics anymore. It's about what's right and wrong. And and I just well, that, I think I think to that point though, like that is politics it, it, in this in this movie. The, in this movie, right? Yeah. Like there is a right and there is a wrong. Right. I mean, a lot of in, times poli- in the political aspect of this. A movie. lot of times, politics is like I want to put a road here. I don't want the road there. Right. Like, that's not right. right or wrong. That's just you know. But um, but and so people kind of like to play this game sometimes of like well let's not talk about politics when a lot of times that's code for i'm on the wrong side of an issue and i don't <laughs> want to hear about it right sure and yeah, right and right. so it was just interesting watching those scenes and knowing that when that movie came out that's how people felt about nazis yeah it's like i don't know if they're right or wrong yeah i mean they you know i mean they you know like yeah they didn't like jews but you didn't know to what degree and what road they were willing to go down. You know what I'm saying? Sure. And so well, and Americans and also lost a lot of people in World War One. They didn't want to jump into another war. Totally. And so there there were a lot of people that were like, let's let's not. Let's let's just not. <laughs> you know? And now we look back and we're like, oh, those people are so dumb. And you know, and it just I don't know. It just But it's a lot of people I mean there's there's a lot of death that comes with war. Sure. And if it's not directly involving you, as in it's it's different when someone attacks you on your soil or right. you're over somewhere and fighting. But when you're neutral, kind of, if you're not in the war and it's like, should we get involved? You're putting a lot of lives at risk and you better make sure you know what you're doing. And yeah. it's not like people are just clamoring to get into that situation. So it's interesting that when this this movie is very much propaganda but not in a bad way but rick is america and and rick is saying i don't want to get involved you know i'm neutral i want to run my business and do all this that's america but then by the end of the movie rick realizes he needs to help and he can help people yeah and it's kind of like hey look at what good you can do like let's get involved with the war yeah i think this was one of the first like overtly anti-german studio films i believe Interesting. Yeah. I mean, and I would think that makes sense. I, I mean, mean again, early with the timeline, yeah. it would have to, right? It's yeah. like it's taking place. It, it, it's It came out in 1942 at the end. They rushed into production, uh, and they wanted to get out so it would be timely. And so it's, it's so early into the war where it makes sense that it's just interesting to have a movie being made about a war that is still going on. That's such or that a- has or that like we aren't even involved in yet, right? Like it's an American movie about a war that we don't really have a stake in yet. I mean, we had just recently, I guess. I you know the movie takes place right before Pearl Harbor, but I mean they set it to. We were just getting into it then, and I think they were still trying to get people act like involved. Yeah. Where oh, I see. I we see. We were just getting into it because of Pearl Harbor, but it was very early on and it was still like people like, I don't know if we should support this war effort. <laughs> and so this movie was coming out and they wanted to push it out to as a pro war. Well, and I think they probably saw that people were, were getting behind the war because I know that, um, Abbott and Costello's buck privates, mm-hmm. uh, that was just written as just kind of a generic, um, army movie. Right. Okay. And, uh, and then as it was coming out, as it was getting ready to come out, the war started. And so they actually, called them back and shot an opening scene to kind of acknowledge that the war had begun and that and they kind of did some reshoots to make it look like oh they they were doing this because there was a war going on and they and they accidentally joined the army even though they're idiots right and uh (laughs) but that that they get pulled in because of the war and 
in that movie was their second film and it was a just massive hit because it was like the only kind of thing about the war in studio in theaters and so it did crazy box office and totally different end of the spectrum but kind of like how China Syndrome came out like two weeks before the Three Mile Isle Three Mile Island accident, and then became right. a huge hit because people were like, "Ooh, what does go on in nuclear reactors?" Right? It was kind of like that. <laughs> and so, yeah, my guess is they were like, hey, "Let's get this out because people want to see war movies right now." So, get it out. There. This I actually this the first time I saw this movie was yesterday. No, really? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You have never yeah. seen phone, this before on your on phone. my phone. It's okay. 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 I should say. I'm in the process of fixing up my house, so in preparation for this movie, like, I'm trying to get the house ready, and I want to be prepared, so I, yes. Thank goodness you did not say this to Leonard Maltin. No kidding. <laughs> you, watched, you watched Casablanca for the first time ever for a podcast where you're talking to famous film critic Leonard Maltin about his favorite movie. I wasn't told about that last part prior, <laughs> but yes. You weren't? Yes. No. I had our, no, I, I think the Leonard Maltin uh drop came after the fact for me. Oh. But it was just I had to, I had to get stuff done. I, that's unfortunately that's the world I'm living when in. When you're right moving, now. man, I've been there. Yeah. It's not, it yeah. it sucks. Moving it is, sucks. It, is, it sucks. Yeah. So what did you think being your first watch? I loved it. I th- I think I was in the same boat as Tom, right? Like there are certain movies uh I'm an 80s kid, so like the when you start going back to movies in the 30s and 40s, I kind of—I'm not that I'm skittish, but it's just like I don't, I don't have time to sit down and uh, the pacing. Like you said, eat. The pacing on those movies is very different, and yes, and I found the more movies I watch that mo- most movies have like kind of like three good scenes, and then the rest yeah. is yeah. is kind of connective tissue, right? And yeah, and on a truly classic movie, the connective tissue is also great, and mm-hmm. and. And when you get to those older movies, that pacing and the connective tissue can feel very wonky at times, right? And and Casablanca's connective tissue is amazing. And so Yeah, there's I, I did not feel so I I mean I've watched all the Universal stuff as a kid. Right. But I mean those were monsters, right? Like that's a different different thing altogether. But yeah, like to that to your point, you're exactly right. Is getting from point A to point D point B, then you've got like musical interludes, which I've I've talked about that, where it's like that that bothers the bejesus out of me. Uh, but this one, everything, like Leonard said, everything had a point. Yeah. Everything had, everything has a story. You've, you Down to the pickpocketer, down to the, the bartender or the guy at the door. Like, everybody has a story. So when you're getting from Rick's point of view to, La- it's Laszlo, right? Yeah. Victor Laszlo is the... Victor Laszlo is yeah. the other... But, but when you're getting from, like, story to story and person to person, the, the people that bring you together... Like you're interested in everybody as a character, and you're interested in everybody, and that's that's what I think is really impressive. And we talked about that in the Maltese Falcon, is that the connective tissue is just as good as your main story. Yeah, which I think is really impressive, and uh, honestly, doesn't happen very often today. It's it's hard, you know what I mean? It's real hard. It's, it's hard it's to have hard. every every scene have great dialogue. If it was that easy, then every movie would be amazing, you know? Right. And this movie right, right, right. reminds me a lot of, uh, oddly enough, of Groundhog Day. Hmm. Oh. Uh, because... Go on. Yeah, you're like, do tell. <laughs> um, you know, so Groundhog Day, had a, there was a lot of fights behind the scenes between Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, right? Harold Ramis wanted to make 
kind of a silly little comedy and he's like you know and bill bill murray was very much like no there's a deeper thing going on here and there was a lot of a lot of fighting back and forth as to what kind of movie they were going to make and and oddly enough they were both wrong and and <laughs> and that fighting of what tone the movie was going to take is ultimately what makes the movie so good, right? Because sure. it does it does just enough of both that it goes from being a good movie to a great movie. I think that if either one of them had won that battle, that that screenplay was solid enough where they probably would have made a good movie. But because yeah. there's this constant battle and it and it ends up doing both that you get this kind of silly comedy, but it has these really deep philosophical points to make at the same time that it it makes it makes it great. You know, what's interesting is this is I mean, this movie to that point was one of a 100 movies put out by WB in the year. Right. They didn't expect anything special from this movie. It it was just flood the market. And I think what have they keep they kind of kept bringing in different writers. Right. They they hired the Epstein brothers to write it and they wrote 30 or 40 pages and then they left to work with Frank Capra on the Why We Fight series. So they brought in somebody else. To, right. to 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 write some more of it and then and then obviously which i think really shaped the tone of it because the the epstein brothers were wanting to make it more comedic and coach was trying to make it more serious right. and and still have humor humorous moments but he wanted to take it seriously so he really set in the tone but then the, the studio wanted humor and then they would punch up the humor and mm. then uh they hired a fourth guy casey robinson who just worked on the paris flashback because they wanted the romance element and they wanted it believable why do these characters have these motivations so he flushed out that whole part of it right and then you have the writers who wrote the play that it's based on right. so you, you i mean there's a lot of hands in this pie and typically yeah. that makes for a bad movie right it and, makes for a yucky pie and it, yeah and it gets very jarring in tone and there's whiplash as it takes these weird tonal shifts but there's something about the way it all gels that that it works and that it is an it, you know an adventure movie and it is a war movie and it is i, I won't say a comedy but there are definitely some laugh out loud moments in the movie sure. the i was just thinking the same thing the scene when uh you're what Ingrid Bergman's character shows up and asks Sam to play the song. Right. And the look on Sam's face where he's like, man, well, like, what are we doing? No. Yeah. No, no, no. And she's like, dude, he's like, hey, well, and Rick's hey. told him never to play that song again. So that's yeah, why he, he comes around the corner. And he was like, ah, oh, what are you doing? Oh, yeah. Before he looks never. over. Yeah. But so, I mean, and there's, and it's also to that point, it's also, I mean, there are musical numbers, right? And yeah, absolutely. There are multiple yeah. musical numbers. Everybody remembers as time goes by, but there's knock on wood. And then there's the, 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 the anthem fight. I know they're not anthems, but, yeah. um, but <laughs> there's a lot going on in this thing where it could have been a hodgepodge nightmare and there's something about the way it works and some of those things overlap, which makes it less jarring because sometimes it's doing a couple of those things at the same time. Yeah. And it's just, yeah, it's, it's fascinating the way they, I, I hate to say accidentally, cause it's like, there's so many talented people involved that then they were trying to make a good movie, but they accidentally made a great movie. One right. of the greatest. I, I think, I think, but how many times have we said that though? Right? Like it just, sometimes these great movies do happen by accident. Yeah, like nobody sets out to make a bad movie. We've said that a hundred million times, except for Sharknado. At least six hundred. Yeah, well, that's fair. <laughs> that's a good point. But but there's just a magic that happens where it, we talk about movies that fail to be, either be good or to be great, and we talk about how they could have been better. But there's so many people and so much work and so much money that goes into a movie. 
I think it's amazing that any of them can end up as good as some do, right? <laughs> sure, like, that's a great point. And, and yeah. so I think that's what happened with this one is you had a lot of talented people, but the fact that they would all come together and the studio heads would make the right decision and the producer that we talked about earlier uh, would go ahead and make you know make all these calls and get the right casting like ingrid bergman didn't want to do it and she was under contract with samuel goldwyn and like they had to do a trade for because they wanted somebody else that was on contract with wb and so they pushed for that and they got bergman and like someone had to make all those decisions and they all fell in place and that's what we got. So it, it is amazing that that can even happen at all. And and uh, that's why these iconic ones, to Leonard's point, yeah, it's 77 years later, and it's still a perfect movie and still one of the best, if not the best, Hollywood movie of all time because it's so hard to reach that level. Right. It's amazing that it ever happens. I think part of the reason it, it also kind of feels like the best thing Hollywood's ever produced is because it checks a lot of boxes in different genres, right? Like... You know, you can you can take another movie, but it'll be like, well, it's a war movie or it's a Western or it's an action movie or it's, a, you know, like where this movie does so many different things and does it all well and then has two of the biggest movie stars of the era working together for the one and only time. And that because of all that, it 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 does it makes it feel like, yeah, that's what Hollywood did. Because it's it's doing a lot of things. Most people have probably seen Casablanca, yeah. but I say that we just blow through it and hit the the major points here. So basically, Rick runs uh, like a, a bar slash casino in uh, Morocco, and Morocco is kind of like this hub for French. Uh, I don't even want to say refugees, but like people who are just trying to get get out of Dodge. Like Fran- France at this point uh, in the world is occupied by Germany. And the French are like, no, thank you. I don't want any part of this. And they're just, it, it's like a hub to get out f- from France to the United States. It's called Vichy France. And it's Is, unoccupied. Were they, was it like un- unoccupied or unincorporated France is kind of. So Rick's life is pretty simple, right? Like he doesn't drink with clients. He's got a very strict set of rules that he follows. Uh, he's got a lush of a, I guess, girlfriend that keeps him coming into the bar and mucking stuff up and he kicks her out. But there's a bit of a history to Rick that we don't really know. And then here comes this woman uh, blowing into the casino and it's Rick's ex-girlfriend who broke his heart. And I do like that even, well, I don't know if it was Sam. I guess it was Sam. That's like, you're bad luck. <laughs> like he he's doing okay right now. And as soon as he knows that you're here, this is going to go to garbage and it's going to be your fault. Well, Sam's yeah. Sam's like, he's not here. He's gone. He's not coming back. He's trying everything he can for the two of them to not get her to out of each other. But right. you know, that's what's so great about this movie is through actions, through the subtext, they tell you, you find out what is going on with Rick as it progresses, but you don't know yes. why he's the way he is. The movie starts off and he's playing chess by himself. He doesn't drink with customers. It looks he's like a he's set of rules. Yeah, but he's all out for himself, or at least it appears to. Right. But as the film goes on, you see that he really does want to help people. And there's also a very specific reason as to why he is the way he is, what happened to him. Right. And it is Elsa. It's Elsa. Yeah. And so Elsa's there. Uh, with her husband, Laszlo. Uh, and it turns out that Laszlo is like a French revolutionist where he's leading. Not French, but he's revolutionist. Is he not French? No. No, he said he, they said he was from Czechoslovakia, right? Yeah, oh, Czech okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But he was, okay. But he's leading the revolution against the Germans. Oh. And so you've got 
they they're they need to get out of Morocco. And it just turns out that Rick has stumbled upon uh, some papers to get them out. And so Rick is kind of the only option to get Elsa and Laszlo out of Morocco to the States. So there's a couple familiar faces. There are. If you watched Maltese Falcon and in her episode. So Ugarty is is played by Peter Laurie and Sydney Greenstreet plays uh, Senor Ferrari in this movie. And the two of them were the fat man and whoever the the guy is that uh, Bogart slaps around in the Maltese Falcon. Uh, <laughs> these guys were in eight films together. All of them together? They were in eight f- That's of fun. the same films yeah, together. They got- but in this one, they share no scenes, which is interesting. Peter Lorre actually gets arrested, and the papers are now hidden inside Sam's piano. It really comes down to a crisis of faith. Where And, and Rick even says at some point, like, you can definitely tell where he's just like, no. Like, hmm. <laughs> F you like I'm not helping you you know and well he doesn't know he's the saying, he's scorned he's uh, he thinks she walked out on him right right she doesn't realize we find out in dribs and drabs throughout the, the film that that she was married to Laszlo before she met Rick in Paris but she thought he had he'd been captured by the Nazis and she thought he was dead like there'd been radio silence from him for for a long time yeah they, he put it he was put in a concentration camp and they thought that was it and then she falls in love with rick and then right as they're supposed to run off and get married she finds out laszlo is still alive so she does the right thing <laughs> and goes back to her husband right correct but rick doesn't know any of that rick just assumes that she she bounced right and he says some mean things you know he's like how many other oh, guys he, were yeah. there you know he's not i mean he's real he's not nice he's scorned like you said though like to him he's been left high and dry they were gonna leave the country he's like let's get married and you can read through her hesitation it's not just like oh we're moving too fast but before we know about the whole laszlo situation she's like uh oh i don't know you know there's that hesitation <laughs> again all the subtext and the way that ingrid bergman with her eyes looks around and her body language it really is masterful stuff the the performances are so good in this movie uh, and tell you everything that you need to know as the film goes on yeah so uh the the germans kind of come to town and they say look this guy doesn't leave like laszlo does not leave this island like if he gets out there he's gonna start uh you know issuing propaganda and it's not good for the german army and the, and even um claude rains is like nah, okay like and you can tell that claude rains is not on the team but knows that he has to play the game to keep things calm yeah. in, in Casablanca. So, yeah, uh, Claude Rains is is Louis uh, Renault, and he's the head of the French police there. Right. And then uh, Conrad Veidt is Major Strasser, who is the Nazi. Uh, who I, when I first saw, I was like, is that Levy and Cleef? What? what is that? What? Oh, no, not, not him. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's, I mean, there's some big names in this movie, pe- people that you'd know from a lot of classic movies. Uh, yeah. But, but the Nazis are, have come to town, as Joe so aptly put it, and uh, this is unoccupied France, but also it's like at that time it's like they're nazis like they're not people to mess with so the french police are like going along with it but they're not necessarily especially you know louis he's not on their side but he also doesn't want to just be killed and have cosmic taken over like i said he knows he has to go along with it play ball exactly (laughs) but they're gonna do what they have to do but not an ounce more yes right correct yeah which we see at the end of the movie yeah like that's you know there's a lot of tension uh, Ingrid Bergman kind of, I, I I wasn't really sure how to, maybe you can explain this to me. I wasn't sure how to take the scene where she goes to see Rick and she's like, I'm still in love with you. Like, was she playing him 
to get the papers or was she being honest? Well, I think both. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it, she never, it's it, the, the thing is so confusing and what makes this love triangle so complex is that it's not like she ever meant to hurt Rick and it's not like she was ever playing him or not in love with him. Like all those things are true. She was married, but she thought her husband was dead and she right. really fell in love with Rick and was going to start a life with him, yeah. but then didn't know how to explain that situation and leaves him. But I, you know, I think also Joe, what you're responding to, uh, appropriately yes believe it or not is that when because this script wasn't finished as they started the movie ingrid bergman didn't know who she was supposed to fall in love with right sure and so she asked the director like which one of these guys do i love more (laughs) like who am i really supposed to want to be with and the director didn't know and he's like just play it both ways and so so, interesting that's that's the halloween story right like that's at the end of halloween uh, Donald Pleasant said, you know, they shoot Michael Myers at the end and he falls off the off the roof and he goes to Carpenter. He's like, how do we play this? And he's like, I can play this one of two ways. I can play it like, oh, my God, he's gone or I knew he'd be gone. And Carpenter's like, I don't know, do them both. Yeah. <laughs> he was like, OK. Yeah. And of course, we got the I, I knew he was gone. That's it's always interesting when it's like, I don't know, man, you do your thing and I'll figure it out in the, later. But that's part of the magic we talked about was she didn't know and so her confusion shows up on screen right but that character should be confused and conflicted because she didn't do anything wrong i mean maybe she she should have told rick or explained but she was also very confused but i mean like ethically she didn't cheat on her husband she thought he was dead so like that character is very confused but they also were were doing this thing of no questions We're, we're just enjoying the moment and we're not you know so so like she didn't say anything because that was the deal, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. True. So it's a messed up situation, but it you is. know, you learn that as it goes, but you know, meanwhile, Rick's got these papers that the only way Laszlo is going to get out of Casablanca and and get to America is is with these the papers that the transit papers that Rick has, but Rick got these papers through a series of events of two German soldiers were killed, and you know you don't want to be caught with these papers either. Yeah, so bad news. So this whole time he's not admitting he has the papers, but everyone knows he has them, and they have to catch someone in the act before they can do anything. <laughs> I officially. do love that, like when they when uh, Claude Rains asks, "Where were they? Where were these papers?" He's like, "They're in Sam's piano." He's like, "Ah." I should have been more musical. And you don't catch Dang that it. the first watch. I sure you didn't catch oh, that I did. until they yeah, told you. You did see it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, that's one of those things that we were talking about. There's so much going on where, I mean, you, you see him doing something at the piano, but if you're not paying real close attention. Like, yeah, he, like, he lifts up like the, the top part and slips him in there, which I was like, that's kind of going to mess up the sound of the piano. Like Sam's gonna, not going to be happy about that. But <laughs> Everybody's <right>. drunk. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Friday night in Casablanca, man. Yeah. So, so yeah, so the push comes to shove, and Rick uh, has a plan set in place, and he tells everybody to meet meet us at the airfield, and we'll figure this out. No, meet us at Rick's. Meet us at Rick's, that's right. And he, Rick kind of, you think Rick has turned them into Claude Rains, but then there's kind of a double cross, but like a very nice double cross. There's like a double, double cross. It's one yeah. of those. So we, so they get, uh, well to say what happens real quick. So to, to Louie, Rick says, I'm, I want to get away with Ilsa. You know, we're in love and we're going to give you Laszlo because it will make you look good. Right. And the Germans want Laszlo. So 
I'm going to call them here and you're going to be waiting for them, but I'm going to take the transit papers and me and Ilsa are going to the States. So they show up, Laszlo and Ilsa, and then Louis jumps out and, and is like, I've got you. But then Rick's like, no, I've got no, you. I've got holds, you. He holds Louis at gunpoint and is like, we're going to the airfield. These two are leaving. And Louis's like, you know, and there's some great dialogue not to get into it, but you know, just Louis is a very funny written character like yes. he's he's one of the funniest in the movie and like rick's like don't make any sudden moves i've got this aimed right at your heart and louis like well that's my least vulnerable spot but <laughs> but i will do what you say and it's so hard he, to watch louis with a modern eye though because he's i mean he's he's raping these women i mean yes that yeah so through a modern lens yes it is difficult and katie noticed that and it had a real hard time she's like oh this guy's gross because what what louis is doing is he's offering exit visas to any woman that will sleep with him right so but i mean when you when you say that it's it's like he's not just forcing himself upon them no but but he's he's definitely he's using he's exploiting his power these people don't have a choice they are desperate to get to the safety of america and get away from nazis i mean he i mean he's indirectly he holds their life in his hands and basically, if you want to escape the Nazis, which we all know means certain death, then you got to sleep with the guy. I mean, that's I mean, it's it just for people that maybe haven't seen it. I'm just trying to explain that it's not like he's when you say he's raping them. Someone's right. going to think, oh, he's going and forcing himself, whatever, like, but he's, you know, quid pro quo. He's like, you right. do yes. something for me. Squid I'll pro get, row. I'll get yeah. you out of the country. He's hardly so Weinstein in it. He, I mean, you're not wrong. So I mean, right? that's yeah. So you're right. It is hard to like him because he's got so many good lines and he's a likable character. But when he's doing that, and especially in these days, you're like, ooh. But I mean, I don't know. I don't want. We, I don't... we say this all the time is you have to you don't have to agree with it. Right. But yeah. you have to at least look at it with a historical context. Right. And it's scummy and it's gross. It is. But it, you know, that was. Just... Yeah. So. So, yeah. So the they get to the airport and the Germans are on the way and actually the germans are there like as they're getting it together um, louis pretends like he's calling the airfield because rick right. says let him know we're coming and there's no problems so he called him and did that kind of thing where you fake like fake you're talking to one person but he really called the, the german the general. nazi and said yeah. you know oh we're beat the airport at this time no trouble and he's like what what so Click. he shows up right yeah and then uh louis turns on the german like they they all kind of turn on i think that uh, rick and louis both realize that they are not on the wrong side of this thing yet, but if they if they turn Laszlo over, they will be on the wrong side of this. Well, he has a decision to make, you know, because Louis doesn't really turn on him yet. It's at the point where the German guy shows up and he's like, "Why?" Well, Louis says they're on that plane, and the plane is in the air. Laszlo right. and Ilsa are gone, and they're, the German the German's going to call the airstrike or whatever yeah. and shoot the plane down but he says why why are they on why'd you let them on that plane and then he's like well that right over there you know talking about rick <laughs> and rick has a gun pointed and and he ends up shooting the nazi right and and then at that point louis like well i didn't like him anyway and now he's gone so rick just got rid of a problem for us and he knows rick isn't a bad person so right. he chooses his sides at that point because you know he already didn't like them but now we can we can make a choice that will make things better for a lot of people and so they team up and at this point on like we talked about earlier 
they allude to the, you know, their future adventures. They don't have to show you. I wouldn't even mind seeing, like, it doesn't have to be a Casablanca sequel. Like, I don't, I liked them together. They were going to make that mo- a movie like that. I would have been all right with it that. It's called, just them what, going Bra- on, you know. Brazaland or something like that. They were going to. Okay. They were, they were trying to get a movie like that off the ground. But I think the problem they would have had is that this movie, you know, even though we say it checks a lot of boxes genre wise, ultimately it's a romance film. Yeah, and that's that's the biggest box it checks, and like, then you, it turns into like a buddy movie. You can't really do that twice, yeah. So I mean that you know with the same character, so right, right. that would be kind of so. I th- I think anything would have felt anticlimactic. So ultimately, they were best to leave it alone. Which, which is right, though. But it's interesting you say that, though. I mean, yes, the romance is at the heart of this movie, and it gives Rick his motivations, and obviously you're rooting for them, but it's also, by the end of it, because they don't go the conventional route, and he lets her go and chooses not to be with... Like, it's very different for a romantic story sure. to make that decision. So it's like... Yes, there's romance in it, but it doesn't live or die by the romance to where if they did spin it off, you wouldn't necessarily need a romantic element because you had the mystery and the noir and the the political stuff. And, you know, there's enough there to where it's like it could go either way. And I think that's what makes it so great is it is all the boxes, like you said, that it checks. So, you know, it's I'm torn. It, It could go either way. I also think this is where, you know, because it's made at the beginning of World War Two. But now that we're, you know, almost 80 years removed and you know we we know the importance of world war 2 we know the importance of stopping nazis and the way that they didn't in mm-hmm. 1942 and sure, so sure. the gesture he makes of letting her leave because he knows it's going to make this freedom fighter even better at fighting freedom or fighting for freedom <laughs> uh that gesture is is even larger and more important than it was in the moment because now we have historical context so it's not something he did against the backdrop of like vietnam and you're like oh that whole war was a waste like it's you know world war ii you know was probably the most important war mankind has ever engaged in probably yeah and uh and so that gesture feels really really important in a way that it wouldn't against a similar history historical right. backdrop they didn't know yet they didn't right. know how they didn't important know that yet. would be and I, and I think that's part of what makes this movie really stick in the public consciousness is that you're like yes you are doing the right thing to win the war effort it, it it's it is an important war effort and you are right it's not just politics this time it's right versus wrong right yeah yeah i i, I think this is i it's crazy that i waited 38 years to see this movie <laughs> but i mean that's kind of the cool thing about this, this podcast and, and you know we haven't had a lot on your releases we've been trying to give you guys content as best we can in the current state of things so this this pandemic has actually opened up the door for me to sit down and watch movies that i have not seen that i probably should oh like yeah. the blue lagoon and return to the blue i lagoon. didn't have oh. to see those oh, then because right. i was in the middle of trying to get a house together <laughs> Yeah, you know, I actually learned when we were working on this. I actually learned something new about this movie that I never knew. The second unit in charge of shooting montages. So, of course, I like why wouldn't I know about that? <laughs> but uh, they were directed by Don Siegel. Really? Who would go on to direct Dirty Harry. Yeah. <laughs> 
Like, huh. he's a big-time film director in his own right. I mean, he wasn't at this point, but he, yeah. he directed Dirty Harry. He directed uh, The Shootist, which was John's, mm-hmm. John Wayne's last film, which is really good. Um, but uh, it's just, I when I saw the name, I was like, wait, is I had no idea. Like, I know nothing about Don Siegel except the, the films that he made. And so... I was just like, wait, is that the same guy? Was he working that that long ago that he worked on Casablanca? That's and awesome. Sure enough, I that there's a connection between Casablanca and Dirty Harry of all movies. <laughs> I love it, and that's yeah. that's all WB, right? Dirty uh, Harry's WB. Dirty Harry's WB. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's amazing when you go back to the studio system and how many people work together and how many movies were people were in the same movies and you're going to have a lot of that like overlap. And then even outside of the studio system, people are still going to choose to work with people that they've worked with before. And yeah. it's just interesting to see how much overlap there is with all these films. Totally. But yeah, this is great. And uh, if you haven't seen it, see it. There's a lot of movies. Preferably like, not on a phone. Yes. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, don't tell Leonard Malton, especially not on Joe's phone. Yeah. Dude, well, I have an all right phone. But yeah, but they'd have to go. But you have like, things to sit, do. Yeah, they can't go <laughs> That's watch. That's also true, yeah. <laughs> but there's movies like this, and another one that Tom mentioned is Citizen Kane. And people people think they're talked about in like the elite film communities as the best movies of all time just because you're supposed to think that. But no, there really is a reason they're called that, and they're great movies. And like I hate online seeing the backlash where people are like, oh, Citizen Kane isn't that good. It's like, no, it really is that it good. Really, it's, <laughs> so, Citizen Kane's just a great story. You, you don't have to know anything about film or or all the cool things they did to get the looks that they you don't need to know any of that technical or the true story of what it's based on you can just sit down and watch that movie and beginning to end good movie it's a great movie so yeah check out this movie if you haven't seen it and again it's rewatchable to you can just keep finding new things and and it uh it's timeless like it's 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 a classic for a reason so uh we talked a lot about how many great lines there are in this movie i was just gonna bring that up so afi did a list of the 100 best movie quotes of all time and uh how many casablanca has six on there that's a lot six that's a lot yeah let me get let's try to guess them let's see if we can check them off the list we can go back and forth joe so here's looking at you kid play it again sam well that's not a line Oh, but, it's not. It's the, oh, I guess um, you know, he just says play this it. Is the, this is the beginning of a beautiful but, friendship. But those are both on. But play it, play it, Sam. And here's looking at you, kid. Okay. Are both on there? Okay, so this is this the, is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. That's on there. Um, of all the gin joints in all the world, she walked into mine. That's on there. We'll always have Paris. Boom. Got one more. You're gonna kick yourself. Oh man. Um I have no idea. Round up the usual suspects. Uh, oh really? Yeah. That's on that made it? Yeah. I mean it's a oh, good that's line. A cl- that's a classic line, yeah. Yeah. I, that's a can like a trope kind of a thing, but I don't I guess I never really thought of it as like a famous line, but that makes sense. I think I think it's a trope. It's I think that line is is similar to uh uh, I made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Like, okay, it, okay. it sounds cliche, but that cliche didn't exist until, until the Godfather. <laughs> until that line and the yeah, run fair, of the usual fair. suspects thing. I mean, it's a it's a funny line. We're we're so used to hearing it, you know. But it's a funny line in that like 
go gather up a bunch of people that we know didn't do it, but they're probably criminals, <laughs> right? Like, like that's it, yeah. We didn't mention like that's after uh, Rick shoots the Nazi. Yeah. That's what Louis says. He could turn him in. All his French officers show up, and he says, "Round up the usual suspects." And, and he's like, "Okay, Captain." Yeah. Like this. So yeah. yeah, they have they have. So it's got six on there. So which is that's pretty good. Is, is there anything else that even comes close to six? Uh, Gone with the Wind uh, and Wizard of Oz tied for second. They both have three. Still, that's a that's so a big gone deal. with the wind. I'm assuming is frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Tomorrow's going to be another day, and I don't know what the third would be. I don't know nothing about birth, and no babies, maybe. <laughs> um, Wizard of Oz is probably what. There's no place like home. I'll get you my pretty. Click your heels, your little dog too. Yeah, yeah, something. Yeah, yeah but uh, we aren't in Kansas anymore, right? Did you say? Oh, that? I bet you that's yeah. it. Oh, probably. Yeah. Anymore. So I also like to talk about just to give some historical context of. When a movie came out, the highest grossing films of 1943. And you saw these on theaters that year, I right? I did. I did. It was a very busy year for me. So <laughs> so uh, Casablanca te- technically came out in 1942, but for box office purposes, it's considered a, a 1943 film because it came out so late in the year. So that's why it's 1943. Yeah, they made like a, the L.A. premiere was in December of or November of 42. But yeah. So the was, nationwide release was 43. Right. So. uh um, so anyway, you will probably have heard of like maybe one of these movies. So number 10 <laughs> is Destination Tokyo. Number nine, Crash Dive. Number eight, Mr. Lucky. And tied for eighth, Hello, Frisco, Hello. So far, I've heard of none of these movies. None of them. Yeah. Nope. No. Can't help you. Uh, number seven, three-way tie, Sweet Rosie O'Grady, uh, which sounds like uh, <laughs> like a a curse word Sherman Potter would say on that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> uh, Coney Island, Hitler's Children. Coming in at number six, Casablanca. Uh, number five, Thousands Cheer. Number four, Stage Door Canteen. Number three, The Song of Bernadette. Number two, the first film I've heard of and the one that prevented Ingrid Bergman from returning to, to film an extra scene for whom the bell's for whom the bell tolls and then number one this is the army so uh which was a big giant i like to you know i you like to do that i like to talk about the remakes of that year and we have zero (laughs) no no remakes from that list untrue oh no really yes because they have remade casablanca twice oh that's true okay there was a made for tv version in 1955 i believe and then in the in the early '80s, there was a short-lived television show starring St- Starsky and Hutch's David Soul as Rick Blaine. Hmm. Uh, which, was it just uh, about the casino? It was a it was a prequel. It takes place prior to the events of Casablanca, and I believe Hector Eliz- Elizondo played Louis. Oh, so okay, make of that what you All will. Right. But it only it, they made I think. 10 episodes i think only three of them ever aired there is a dvd set of it out but uh it's pretty difficult to find but and it's got like all 10 or 13 episodes but uh but yeah weird casablanca the tv show they would when people tell you you can't that's untouchable nothing is untouchable nothing wrap your head around that whatever you love if you love it enough someone will try to remake it deal with it that's so, the world we live in, in, especially especially in 2020. Yes. Someone the other day when when I was getting on about remakes and everyone was like, "Why are they remaking this?" It's like you know what? At some point, you have to accept Hollywood's never going to stop doing it. See it or don't, but it's like don't be surprised by it. Right. 
Well, right. and like we talked about before, Maltese Falcon, the the Humphrey Bogart one, that was their third attempt at that film. So That's crazy. If you take this whole like, don't ever do a remake, you you wouldn't get that. Wizard of Oz, the nineteen thirty, the yeah. famous one. That yeah, Frankenstein. Wizard of Oz had been made a couple times before. Yep. Th- they did it. But so, you know yeah. what though, the difference is, I'm not anti remake, and I don't think a lot of people are. It's don't remake great movies. Remake right. movies that have potential. Yeah. So if there's a movie that wasn't very good, but the but on paper, <laughs> like Justice League, <laughs> well, four, four hour uh, TV special yeah. for that one. Yeah. <laughs> but I heard I heard Jack Snyder's Justice League, which is a weird transition from Casablanca. But uh, I heard that there's only thirty minutes of the Whedon cut in that movie, and it's three and a half hours of new. Footage. I mean, it has to be a completely different. It's movie. a completely different movie. Yeah. So yeah. we'll see what happens. We shall see. So. So anyway, uh, that's it for this one. I guess let's go around the table and everyone can say where to find them. This is Joe. You can follow me on the Twitter at Joey Butts, B-U-T-T-S 21. This is Kevin. Follow me on Twitter at Kevin R. Brackett. And this is Tom. You can follow me on Twitter at Roger Kubert or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Tom O'Keefe. You can find the show online, Facebook.com slash Real Spoilers. While you're there, like the page, join the group. And of course, don't forget our Patreon, Patreon.com slash Real Spoilers, where for five bucks a month, you get all sorts of bonus content and you help us buy new equipment. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, uh. Anyway, that's it for this one. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, Pepe becomes obsessed with Gabby. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. A sigh is just a sigh. The fundamental things apply as time goes by. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.